And welcome back, everybody, to Double Down with Wrestler, where we cover the world of... You know what? I always screw this. I always want to say the world of sports betting, but it's the business of sports betting all mm-hmm. around the world. And today we truly go around the globe. We hop the pond over to the UK. And with us, we've got, through the magic of technology, Andy Clarkson, the founder of Red Knot Communications and longtime executive in the sports betting industry, here to give us observations about what's going on in Europe and what's moving to the U.S. Andy, welcome to the program. Great to be here, James. Good to see you. So a couple it's things. It's uh, cold here, so uh, nice, nice to talk to Well, I'm, I'm, I'm coming from L.A., so we got the opposite. So somewhere in between is... Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I but I do love London. Been there a few times. I assume you've made it out to L.A. before. I, I actually was based in L.A. at various stages in my career. And uh, nice. just around 2019, I was in L.A. every other week, flying from oh, cool. London to, to, to work on a Fox bet. So that was, uh, yeah. Well, well hopefully uh, you should come back soon. It may not be here soon, the way things are going. But uh, <laughs> so far, so far, it's alive. We have a big... Big debate tonight between our, our governor and the governor of Florida, which should be a pretty fun, yes. uh, fun watch. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So uh, some housekeeping measures. First of all, Red Knot. How come Red uh, – explain the name Red Knot. Where'd you come up with <laughs> that? Really, yeah, it's a good one, actually. The Red Knot is the smallest and most powerful migratory bird. So you should <laughs> check out Red Knot. The Red, the Red Knot moves pretty much from the Arctic to the Antarctic every year – I don't know how many miles that is, but it's a tiny little bird. It goes all the way down the east coast, actually, of uh, of America. And we thought it was a really good name for a small agency that works across the world and can be anywhere at no time um, and is powerful but cute. So there you go. That's the rest. Red wow, I, I I love it. The only issue is you got to explain it because I assume most people don't don't know that. But it's a it's a fun explanation. I'd never heard of this bird. <laughs> it, it works. Well. It's a lovely little bird, and I'm sure now you'll start noticing them. Uh, wherever you go so yeah from the north pole to the south pole pretty much every year and he's tiny he's like a little guy right he's like a little guy he's a few inches wide it takes him a few days to get down there but he does it slow and steady just like you guys huh Mm -hmm. all right and then one more housekeeping measure you know i got to ask you about maxim andy apparently was what editor of maxim magazine I actually was a publisher. Yeah, I ran it publisher. for seven years. Seven years. Wow, that, that that must have been a good time. It was an amazing time. I actually, I think I'm credited with uh, having started the Super Bowl party for Maxim. Actually, so yeah, '98 until 2006. Uh, it was how could you, how could you ever give up that position? I, I mean, it doesn't make <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm really yeah, questioning well, what's going on in your head. Yeah. Well, I had a family, and you know, had to had to kind of get a bit. Oh, that was the mistake. Yeah. There you go. There Having a family and running Maxim Magazine is probably <laughs> a little incongruent. Absolutely. But it was an amazing time. Yeah, I, I think I moved to New York in 98 and we we basically sold the company in 2007. Oh. Um, it's carried on since then, but the original team on it were, um, you know, were primarily English, actually. But then we, then we brought Americans in. So it was um, it was a phenomenal time. And uh, yeah, I have some of the photos to um, that I think uh-huh. somewhere. I- I I, so I I have some of the photos uh, ingrained in my memory, actually. <laughs> um, it, it's funny because I just happened to see that that brand recently because I hadn't thought about it in a long time. But we were looking for a Halloween party here in L.A. And sure enough, there was the Maxim Halloween party. So, I mean, what is the current status of this company as far as you know? Yeah, well, actually, it, it was bought by private equity when we sold. So we launched it. We, we had a Maxim UK that launched in 1990. Five, 
And then we took it to America in 1997. It became explosive, huge, um, biggest men's magazine in one of the biggest magazines in America. Then it became one of the biggest men's magazines in the world. Actually, we had 40 editions worldwide. And then my my kind of boss was a guy called Felix Dennis, who was a inspirational and uh, a bit of a kind of crazy entrepreneurial millionaire dude. He sold it to private equity when a bunch of the original team, like myself, left. It then went through a little bit of a kind of tough time. You know, the internet had come along. The you know, it was it was it was not as easy to sell magazines. Paper prices had gone up. Advertising was kind of ramping down a bit, and it went through a series of owners dropping in in maybe circulation. But recently, it was bought um, by a guy. I don't know him, but he's run the magazine for the last few years. And where they've really seen, I think a. Um, a way for revenues is to keep that kind of party event stream going, something that we started back then. Um, and it was always a powerful brand, very powerful brand for a certain age group. And actually, I think he's done a very good job out of that. And I think, you know, rather than people sitting down and reading magazines now, there's really a website, there is a magazine, but it's not the big revenue driver. And they make a lot of money out of Super Bowl and Halloween parties, obviously. Yeah. So you think there is still a print edition of it? I think there is a print edition. Mm. Yeah. Because, you, you know, Play, Playboy doesn't print anymore. No, no. It's certainly Maxim certainly printed up to the last, you know, maybe over just over a year ago. I mean, if you remember, there was a Maxim bet. There was a uh, there was a license deal that the guys at Maxim did with a, with a gaming company and actually launched Maxim bet in the US. Um, sadly, no longer with us, which is... Um, one of those smaller brands who we've seen have kind of fallen out as the US market has consolidated so quickly and so heavily into the big the big two and then maybe the next three or four. So, um, but yeah, it's a strong brand um, up there for a while. Like we were, you know, we competed with Sports Illustrated, Playboy, as you know, as you said, and um, and really developed uh, a, a kind of a, 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 a a brand out of nothing for guys. I think they were at college and um, and just leave. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, amazing brand and uh, women and gambling. That kind of goes together for men, so that that deal makes sense. And yeah. uh, <laughs> seems like you're you're hitting all the vices. Uh, so yeah. you're with, with with women and also in the gambling business. I know you've you've been with a number of companies and uh, and now with you founded Red Knot. So tell us what Red Knot does. Well, Red, Red Knot actually was formed by myself and a couple of uh, friends who've been in the industry for a long time in the media industry as well as the gaming industry because we felt when the US market exploded, especially the US market, there really wasn't any uh, kind of strategic communications, PR firms that understood the sports betting industry the way that we felt we did. And we knew the media. And there was a, it's a, such a huge ecosystem. You know, we've got FanDuel and DraftKings and now Fanatics and Bet365 and, and MGM at the top of this system. And then underneath there, there are just literally hundreds into thousands of B2B suppliers of various products from, from casino games to pricing infrastructure to payments to fraud and compliance, reg tech, you name it. And we felt that there were so many good companies out there and technology companies, especially where the guys were looking for the, the the companies rather looking for partnerships or maybe investment in a business community have built great products have a great business but don't really know how to tell that story and rise above the competition so we felt there was a really good niche for people that understood the market and that's where we've sat you know and we've represented um a number of companies some from the t- top level like Stronach, first content 
um, household names, all the way though through, really our sweet spot has been good companies selling product into the big operators. And we've managed to represent companies that have you know, then been acquired by some of those. So, you know, it's a way, it's a PR firm, you know, true to its nature. Now PR is all social, primarily as much as, you know, uh, traditional media. But we've really got our our experience and hooks kind of into the business and technology community as well as the sports betting. Cool. I've heard people say that, you know, that startups in the U.S. is just a much more common thing than in Europe. So that the ecosystem that's developed in the U.S. as a result of the explosion of sports betting has just been phenomenal compared to perhaps what developed in Europe. A lot of the companies actually have been kind of European, some of the companies that we brought in. Um, and they've seen the U.S. as the market to move into. But you're absolutely right that it was the it was the explosion of or, you know, the, the, the regulation changing in the U.S. that really created just a, a phenomenal demand and a phenomenal you know kind of industry below those operators where people are applying their trade in the U.S. But yeah, I mean the U.S. has always been um, a, a, an easier, I would say, somebody started businesses on both sides of the pond has always been an easier place to um, raise capital, to get investment behind you, to, you know, to be able to start a company. I'd say that, you know, the UK has always been very um, positive for, for startups, but there are, you know, there's, there's just less enthusiasm sometimes here and optimism, um, which means you have to do a lot of work to raise, not so much cash. So yeah, it's been, um, it's been a massive springboard in the US. And I say now we're a few, years in since PASPA was repealed, um, we are starting to see, you know, things normalize. People are focused on product more than, say, just branding. Um, we've seen some of the companies do exceptionally well. Some have obviously fallen by the wayside. But I think, if anything, the US has moved uh, far faster than the European markets did. We always thought it would. But if I think back to, you know, kind of the birth of online gaming um, in the UK, which was in the early 2000s, you know, then we hit mobile phones around 2010, 2011. From that period, we're talking, you know, kind of 20 years um, to get to a point that the US has got to in four. And by what, what point is that? I mean, kind of big consolidation, you know. Major product um, launches and an unbelievable, uh, you know, an unbelievable industry, you know, with, mm. with, with, with billion dollars and billions of dollars in handle. So, yeah, it's been a, it's it's moved quickly. I think that'll also mean that the US moves quickly to regulate. You know, I think that we'll see not just states regulating now. With I think we've seen quite a slowdown recently, but I think that a move where the operators need to think about how they protect the vulnerable, how they are doing responsible gaming activity, all of these things that again took a long while to come through in the UK, I think we'll see we'll see come pretty quickly in the US. And what are some things that you think uh, are in Europe because it's more advanced and been around longer that the US hasn't gotten to yet? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. You know, you know the, the, the one that we thought in the early days, and actually, you know, has now really taken off in the US, was a focus on um, what we called bet builders in the in the UK, but are called single game parlays. You know, and, and that kind of product drive. Uh, a few many years ago, it became very much um, European books, really led by the UK, all became focused on product, product, product. You had to have you know easy to find markets. You needed to be able to build markets on a single match. You needed to be able to create those in-game parlays, you need to be able to bet on props, you needed in-play betting. 
Um, and that became the focus of the big companies like Bet365, like Skybet uh, and, and, and William Hill and so on. And then that was not there, maybe understandably so, from 2017, 2018, 2019 in the US. But I think Fangio really, uh, you know, really focused in and targeted that. And now the other guys, certainly DraftKings have caught up and Fanatics and Bet365 and are in offering those kind of, maybe not so much micro markets, but, you know, kind of ways to build on props. I think, you know, in, in that sense, there, there was always a betting community that's going to bet, but to really engage uh, young bettors, female bettors, general people that maybe are interested, you know, betting's up against, you know, going to the cinema or, or net, you know, buying a Netflix subscription or whatever it might be as a fun activity, going bowling or something, you needed something that could capture the imagination. And I think that, you know, prop bets, bets around players and bets around the ability to put together a parlay where you can get a bigger payout is what's really been the driver, I think, in the last year in the US. But that came from UK. That was all built here. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, so a bet basically on whether Patrick Mahomes will have over under a certain number of passing yards parlayed to a couple other player bets in a game. Exactly. I think that, you know, that's how you, that's how you can build a big payout off of a small stake. You know, that's how you can get a hundred bucks off a $10 stake. That's what a lot of people coming into the game want to do. And that's where you can kind of find some real kind of enjoyment. Obviously having technologies that can run those products has been the key. Um, so you've got to rely on some super smart, you know, modeling guys that be able to that can predict and modeling game. You've got to rely on technologies that are low latency, and you've got to have great marketeers and great design product that can get complex, you know, a complex set of numbers in front of people on a mobile phone that actually makes sense. So I think that's where the real kind of talent you know, uh, is going to lie and is lying in the US. I've been interested to see the Fanatic Sports book, which looks kind of super simple, um, streamlined. You know, one of the problems for sports books in the US when launched and actually in the UK um, and still there is that ultimately you're dealing with a big list, right? Whatever it is, you're just, you're just reading a list. It's like, okay, football, NFL, Broncos versus Giants. And you're just kind of going down. And it's not that exciting as a, as a design technique. So to try and bring in, you know, different visualizations, ways to simply swipe left and right to build on bets, you've got to try and make these things feel like the modern, you know, the modern app world. Um, I think we're still a step away from voice. One of the clients that we work with, actually, a Red Knot, is a super innovative company called VoxBear. They have mastered, um, they basically mastered the kind of lexicon of sports betting, the dictionary of sports betting, so that you can speak into your phone and they can come up with a bet immediately. You can say, you know, Mahomes over 375 yards, whatever, and it will come up in your, uh, in, 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 as a text message in your, uh, or a text in your phone. I think that is definitely going to be the future. We'll be able to talk our bet to our TV, to our Alexa, in our kitchen, in our car. But that's still a little way off, probably, in terms around, you know, how that gets regularly. Cool. All right, we got to take our first break, and we'll be back with more talking to Andy Clarkson, founder of Red Knight Communications, direct from London. The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert, Warren Buffett, once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, 
your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. Hi, it's Lauren the Better, and you're listening to Double Down with Breslow on the Evergreen Podcast Network. And welcome back, everybody, to Double Down with Breslow. We are speaking with Andy Clarkson, the founder of Red Knot Communications in London, England, uh, and talking about some of the difference between what's going on in Europe and the U.S., Fill us in on the latest um, on this. There's, am I right that there's some type of advertising ban that's being put in place in some European countries? Yeah, uh, actually, in, in a few countries across the world, I think Australia now has a full ban on uh, on betting companies. Um, so on- so let's just stop right there. I want to make yeah. sure what you know what we're talking about. So Australia, which, by the way, is real known for sports betting, right? Uh, been, been around there for a long time. Is it literally zero zero zero? Yeah, advertising zero zero on broadcast. I think it is. Um, and digital is you know you can, but there's certain restrictions around digital. Um, what we're seeing in the UK primarily is the start of a ban on any um, sports shirts. So you know the Premier League football shirts. I think seven out of twenty teams in the in the Premier League at one point were sponsored by a betting company. That there's been a big push. I think at the moment we're about to go into an election year, so I'm not sure much is going to happen in the next few months, but that looks like a pretty likely restriction. Um, some of that is interesting because many of the uh, many of the sponsors, actually betting sponsors of UK football teams, do not actually ply their trade in the UK. They are um, Asian betting companies that that sponsor the shirts of the UK teams because they know the audience in Asia is watching the UK Premier League. So it's kind of like an interesting interesting dilemma. Obviously, a lot of money has gone into uh, Premier League from betting companies, but we have quite a um, quite a push down in the UK in terms from the media, from the government on gaming and betting regulation. I think what you know one of the big things I noticed from working from US and UK is that there's a there's a different kind of excitement in the US around the potential of sports betting as an engagement activity. Um, yes, obviously people are concerned about you know protecting vulnerable people uh, and anyone that could be addicted uh, in any way and making sure that the, the the appropriate kind of responsible measures are in place. But I think there's a general understanding that, you know, p- people love to bet on the game, that that, that can be fun, and that and it brings an even bigger engagement into the game. In the UK, we have had that for some time, but uh, um, and people have been, you know, kind of happy to see it. But I think, if anything, the industry doesn't regulate itself very well. So when we see big sporting events, um, like a World Cup, we'll find that the big betting companies in the UK will take as many ad slots as possible on, you know, broadcast, linear TV. They'll they'll buy up every piece of real estate. And then you get a backlash, you know. You, you you just do. You've got you got you know your mom and your grandma and the kids all watching the game and all that. We, we want to see some beer commercials. 
commercials, not just sports betting commercials. Exactly. We need, yeah, we need the old Maxim commercial. <laughs> so, um, but you know, but I think that's so. So that's what's kind of happened in the UK, and I think that ultimately, by not regulating themselves sensibly, um, maybe being a little bit, you know, t- taking what they can in terms of getting in front of people, there's been quite a pushback from the government. So, well, look, I'm I'm seeing the same thing happening here very rapidly. I mean, where the leagues went from opposing sports betting and saying that the integrity of the game is going to be shot if we allow this and then overnight they seem to have zero concern about it to the point where the announcers of the game are shilling for one of the sports betting companies and their ads are everywhere and it just went from 180 degree difference as far as their position it felt like almost overnight yeah and and yes we are absolutely in i'm in california so i I, were so i probably get less here than they get in other places but i feel that the ads are just everywhere uh but as far as i can see in the u.s i haven't heard any pushback yet on that from i mean maybe you know better than i do if there's any states that are pushing back on that in the u.s i think there's been a few yeah there's been there's been a few um it was a governor of new york who who was kind of you know trying to push through you know bills around kind of banning actually sports betting advertising i think we're a long long way off from any of that i do think the leagues have to be careful it was interesting i was working at uh fox bet so the kind of joint venture partnership between poker stars and fox sports 2019 2018 2019 just as everything was uh just everything was coming online and we were talking to all of the sports leagues about their promotions you know and what we could do and could we work with the different leagues and you could you probably know the nba and the nhl were very forward thinking about betting they 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 they, they, they kind of considered it i think way before passport was repealed and we could start to do kind of deals with those guys quite quickly. And they knew exactly what was possible, what wasn't possible, when you could use players, when you couldn't use players. And they had a lot of rules. The NFL were not negative at first, but they really wouldn't let anybody do anything, right? And we know that that's kind of one of the things with the NFL generally is they, you know, they 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 they, they, they kind of dominate the things that they that they operate with. And as someone that used to run Maxim parties at Super Bowls, I know how much they like to kind of dominate, you know, fair enough, and, and, and kind of own the environment. But what was really happening, I think, with the NFL was they weren't sure of how they wanted to respond and how they were going to participate. So for the first few years, they, it looked looked like from afar or from outside, they were negative about sports betting and were not interested in being involved. That wasn't actually the case from what I could see. What they were doing was just talking to everybody and working out how they were going to kind of, you know, maximize, you know, their, their own involvement. Um, and the MLB actually was always pretty reticent and it's still been slower. And I think that was more on a, you know, they just felt that they, they, they you know, it wasn't right for the league at the time. Although so, I do have to interject and, and, and say that I'll never forget watching the World Series. And I'm talking about a solid maybe four years ago. This would have been probably your time because it's it was Fox and it was Joe Buck. And yeah. I'll never forget Joe Buck saying, you know, and coming up to the plate is uh, whoever it was. And by the way, you know, the likelihood of him hitting, hitting a home run if you want to place a bet on that, it's go to Fox. <laughs> but I'm like, whoa, man, here we are, the World Series, the announcer, and he's talking about betting on this next player. <laughs> that <laughs> well, must you know have been what? your idea. That, yeah, it was our idea. Yeah, that was our idea, by the way. We were trying to get integrations in. I mean, we wanted a Fox bet logo behind, you know, behind the home plate, to be honest, just kind of floating there. But 
You know what? I think it's what what the sports channel saw, which is what we were very kind of excited about. And I think Fox were really on the on the on the cutting edge of this one was they just saw the engagement levels that the betting and gamification brings to the viewership, you know, and the, and the and the time. And actually, we talked about what happens in the US UK. We saw that in the UK. Um, I work with Skybet, who are you know the, the one of the biggest uh, broadcasters of sports in the UK. They have Sky Sports, and then they had their own bet company and that was kind of what Foxbet was based on and Skybet had a lot of research which showed that people that were engaged in betting or even sometimes kind of free-to-play games but from those companies around the game were more engaged in the viewership you know they were staying longer they were watching the end of the game they were getting involved during the you know doing things during halftime. So I think there is a, you know, there's a very good symbiotic relationship between the gamification of the individual experience and the sport that you're watching, making yeah. it less of a, you know, a, a passive viewership. Well, look, it, 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 and this is going to lead to a question, but, but, you know, at the end of the day, it all comes down to, is this an activity that we should be concerned about people being engaged in? For instance, drinking, should we be concerned about people being involved in drinking? Yeah, because it can lead to some pretty bad things. Should we make it illegal no we've tried that before so sports betting and since europe is so more far further advanced in the u.s i mean bottom line what are the studies showing as far as addiction problems in europe since you guys legalized all this yeah well i mean to be honest i don't think there's any conclusive evidence here at all that people are more addicted um because it's been you know more open uh there there have always been people that we know that sports bet and gamble when it is a black market activity, I think we'll find that there are far more dangers than a regulated listed companies with you know uh, the, because you can get yourself in a lot of trouble very quickly if you uh, owe people money but I think that what we've seen is that the industry has to be fully focused and not just internally doing this it has to be presenting itself PR in itself some of the red note does but you know, making the narrative work for the for the for the audience which is the country here that this is a, an activity that people will do that people enjoy but that they've got responsible regulatory technologies that allow them to spot all the signs of anybody that could have a problem or anybody that is doing something um, illegal and that they are fully aware of that audience and know how to respond, talk and and intervene if there is a problem. And I think one of the things that will save the industry uh, here, because obviously as things get ubiquitous, of course, you're opening up to more people, is the fact that the, the, the technologies are... I guess, you know, are, are improving, new technologies arriving every day that allow you to spot all of this activity. So now there are many companies that can, you know, we know how long someone's been playing a game. We know, you know, you can set self-rules. We know what times of day people play when it's a dangerous time of day to be playing. We know the kind of spend that people shouldn't be spending. All of that stuff is all driven by machine learning, you know, algorithms, you don't need loads of people. You can put up red flags and you can stop people's involvement in betting if you need to. So I think, you know, having that technology at our, uh, you know, at, at our disposal now is the way to make sure that gambling companies operate responsibly and that's what they're doing in the UK for sure. But they haven't been very good at managing the narrative around. What and about that... uh, this? I'm not even aware of what the rules are in the US. Max bet. Is there max bet rules in most of Europe? Uh, 
No, no. You, I mean, you can you can set your own rules basically. So you have, you know, when you when you sign up to any one of the betting apps, you will be asked to set your own limits at first. So that could be a hundred bucks a day, could be a hundred bucks a year. There are, if you try to bet at a higher level, obviously the company is going to want to investigate um, and look at you anyway, because one, it's not just around vulnerability. The company doesn't want to be taken for a ride by someone with information they don't have. But what we're doing in the UK, actually, James, which might be of interest, and I think this is where the US will go very quickly, is we now have access to kind of open banking. So the rules that are going to come into the UK here, they are affordability checks. So what was about to happen in the UK is that people um, that are betting, if they bet over a certain amount or try to bet over a certain amount in a day, a week or a month, and those limits aren't high, like $200 in a month, say, they will have to show bank statements or affordability checks to the bookmaker to show that they have the means to fund their uh, betting activity. Mm. So that's very uh, full of friction, is onerous. People don't want to do that, obviously. And that could be a very bad thing for the for the betting companies. But there are now technologies that allow you, so if you have the funds to be able to bet and you enjoy betting and you've got the money and the disposable income to bet 100 bucks a month or whatever it might be, you can actually sign up with 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 one or two companies um, that allow you now to to link that straight to your banking system, which is all anonymous, but you get it, so that actually you can show you have that money and you don't have any friction. And then the betting company allows you to bet. So yes, we're basically getting affordability checks coming into would, the UK. Would, would that also theoretically allow somebody to bet on credit? No. So there's never been an allowance for credit, and that's the other thing you've got to think about here. And the same in the US, there there is no regulation that's ever allowed people to run up a credit line. Mm-hmm. And that actually is a, is a great point because I think that shows why a regulated betting market is always going to be superior. Yeah, yeah the thing that's dangerous no about the bookie is he extends credit. So exactly. you, get to, you yeah, bet you as much to... as you want. And then on, on Monday night, football you try to get healthy from the weekend and you 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 double up on everything and the next thing you know you got a guy knocking on your door exactly exactly there's always a yeah you don't want want the settling up uh text but 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 you know i have also thought simply from a business perspective that man if there was a company that could figure out how to allow it on credit (laughs) that's a huge market advantage but i guess you're saying from a regulatory standpoint it's just simply not allowed just simply not allowed yeah just simply not allowed so i think it's a uh you know look all of this regulation is coming the friction that the that the that the affordability checks put into the process could really hurt the industry because there could be people that like to gamble, like to wager, have the money, but just can't. You know, they don't want to open up. You know, that, that kind of information, or they don't have the time. But I do think there are technologies now that are going to make these things kind of smoother again. It's just like the the geofencing tech, which really opened the door for online gaming in the US, you know, until states could could literally lock down your location in the state, there was no way that, you know, federally, we were going to have sports betting allowable. But once that tech showed itself to be not just accurate, you know, like pixel pinpoint accurate, um, we've been able to get this this kind of state by state rollout. Yeah. So. Well, I'm not sure I'm crazy about Big Brother telling me, you know, how much I can bet based on how much money I have. I mean, that's pretty, pretty It's very un-American. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, gosh, I, I got a thousand. But, you know, well, as I said at the start, I do think it's a really interesting point for the industry to kind of take note that the UK gaming industry and betting industry really didn't regulate itself successfully. And I think that is, you know, 
you've got to be responsible, show that and get that narrative out, not just to the, the regulators and the government, not just to the media, but the general, you know, the, the, the citizens in general and make sure that people understand that, you know, you're, you're doing the right job. So, yeah. well, hey, I got a thousand more questions, but we're running out of time. So let me just wrap up on on Australia. Yeah. Tell me. So I, I'm really curious about Australia and, and this ban. So when did the ban take effect and, and what are they seeing as far as the impact on the business, um, the fact that they're not advertising sports betting anymore. Yeah, well, actually, I, I, I'm not an expert. I've got to say, James, on on the Australian ban. I think the ban came in a couple of months ago. There was already kind of heavy restrictions. Um, look, what you're going to see in any of this, right? With, and this is one of the things that all of the regulators have to deal with. If you tell people that they can't sponsor um, football shirts, that might be a good, you know, that, that might be a good thing, right? You've got a lot of young kids watching their heroes on the field and they've got uh, the, the, the logo of a betting company plastered across their shirt. I think we can probably get with that if that's where it's going. But if you take all of the budgets that these huge companies have and you say you can't spend on broadcast TV, right, and you can't sponsor at uh, one of the big events at the Super Bowl or something like that, they're not going to just say okay fine we won't use that money they will use those those budgets in a another channel right and now we have digital channels which are way more effective so i think you know it's got to be something that the industry kind of can get behind and agree with because if you just come down onto something that's global and you say you know we're going to restrict you from this thing that's super visible to us as 50 year old regulators who's to know they're not spending now you know four times the money on tiktok you know yeah. and, and and this is the kind of thing that you know that the, the people have to be really aware about how these regulatory companies roll out yeah that's a, that's a great point and, and i got an analogy for you because i hadn't thought about it this way but but you're right you know cigarettes in in the u.s i mean i'm not even sure where or how you're able to advertise them anymore but guess what you get a lot of shit in the mail from cigarette companies which i always thought was weird it's like why is a cigarette company send me right. like for a free, send away for a free pack of marlboro it seems like but <clears throat> it's the first time i've realized that that's the reason they've got a marketing budget they're going to find a way to spend it they they have to they have they have competition and so the cigarette companies went to mailers. Right. And people get really creative, you know, and who to say that that's not actually more effective. So, like, I, I think, you know, everyone's got to be responsible in this. And what we've seen from the UK, and it's understandable, you know, there's a big market, it explodes. You've got cash in the bank. Why don't you go and sponsor the World Cup and just go crazy, right? And let's put, let's put our betting logo on everybody's shirt. But I think... There has to be a continual dialogue and we have to understand that there are the good side is technology and regulated companies can spot any problems and help out. The bad side is, you know, they have to make sure that they don't overstep the mark and do that yourself before, you know, before somebody else or before there's a, you know, before there's a mob outside or before there's a march about, you know, the, the dangers of, of, of what you're doing. So, right. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, let's leave it there, my friend. I really enjoyed it. Love to have you back on because I've got a zillion more questions. Andy Clerkson, direct from London, England, Red Knot Communications. How can people find you um, out there on the Red net? Not, rednotcoms.com. Red I wanted it to be rednot.com, but I couldn't quite get it. So, rednotcoms.com. All right. Cool. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, James. Love you. Thank you all for watching and listening to another episode of Double Down with Russell. We'll be back soon with another great interview.